This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. Support this podcast by joining the independent progressive media revolution today at humanistreport.com. Welcome to the Humanist Report podcast. My name is Mike Figueredo, and this is the 100th episode of the podcast. Um, it's hard to believe that we've been doing this now for 100 episodes, but, you know, uh, we've got to believe it. So I I don't have anything special plan for today, specifically because this week was pretty hectic in terms of politics, so I'd rather focus on the issues. And furthermore, we just passed the 100,000 subscriber milestone, so I think that if we get a little bit too self-congratulatory, you know, it's a little bit annoying, so uh, we'll just carry on as if this were uh, a normal episode, because it is for the most part. So uh, today is June 23rd, it's a Friday, And before we jump into the issues, I want to take a moment to thank all of these people for deciding to support us through Patreon and PayPal. Today we have Aaron, Chris Calamusi, Colin Barber, Connie Hernandez, Danny German, David Merch, Don C., Eric Gans, Hector Menivar, Jazz, and William Plummer. So if you too would like to support the podcast, you can visit humanistreport.com slash support or go to patreon.com forward slash humanistreport. So on today's episode, first of all, we'll talk about how the Democrats are now confused as to why corporate Democrat John Ossoff lost. And we have more details that emerged about the murder of Philando Castile. So we'll talk about that. And I'll also talk about the Senate version of the GOP healthcare plan and how disabled people actually banded together to protest it. I'll also discuss how Trump sold us out to Big Pharma and how he put his hatred of the poor on full display. And also on this episode, Hawaii is moving forward with a bill to implement universal basic income. And finally, on this episode, we're going to revisit the 2016 general election and look back on a former clip from the show where I explain why I personally supported Jill Stein over Hillary Clinton now that she's getting a bunch of random hatred. So all of these topics we discussed on today's episode, let's go ahead and jump right in. This week, a special election took place in Georgia's 6th Congressional District, and even though the National Democratic Party had largely given the cold shoulder to progressive Democratic contenders in other special elections, such as Rob Quist in Montana or James Thompson in Kansas, they really cared about this election, and this was the one election where they wanted to draw a line in the sand and really make an effort to win and make it a referendum on Donald Trump. So this was really important to them. Now, the Democratic contender in this particular race was John Ossoff. Now, he was facing off against Republican extremist Karen Handel, and even though this particular district has gone to Republicans for decades, it wasn't an unwinnable district by any stretch of the imagination. So, for example, John Ossoff outraised Karen Handel by a 5-1 to one margin, making it the most expensive house race in American history. He was also ahead of her in the polls just days before the election took place. The race also garnered national media attention, and during the general election, Hillary Clinton actually nearly won this district and was just a point and a half behind Trump. But most importantly, this was a winnable district because the Republican contender was so awful, so incompetent, that during a live televised debate, she literally said this. I do not support a livable wage. I do not support a livable wage. 
Yeah, so when you take all of these facts into consideration, this was not an unwinnable district. In fact, I think that John Ossoff should have been the favorite to win. However, did he win overall? Well, as you all know, he didn't just lose this race, but he actually underperformed Hillary Clinton. He lost by nearly four points with 48.1% of the vote, while Karen Handel won with 51.9% of the vote. Now, let me remind you that Hillary Clinton only lost this district by a point and a half. She received 46.8% of the vote to Trump's 48.3% of the vote. So, in what was a winnable race, John Ossoff performed so poorly that Democrats actually lost ground in this district. And now, members of the Democratic Party are so angered by this loss that some are now calling for the ousting of Nancy Pelosi as a result. We need a winning strategy. And I think the first step to getting to a winning strategy is a change in leadership. So the question is, how did John Ossoff lose so badly? How did the Democratic Party actually lose ground when you compare this special election to the general election, I mean, he underperformed Hillary Clinton. That's got to say something about John Ossoff, right? Well, it says a lot. John Ossoff was a horrible candidate. So not only did he oppose tax increases on the wealthy, uh, he literally said that he would fight against movement towards a single-payer healthcare system. So he was not a progressive. In fact, he wasn't even a liberal. He was a neoliberal centrist. And not only that, he, he also had no policy substance. But he was a terrible candidate, and he ran one of the worst campaigns I've seen uh, perhaps since Hillary Clinton. But apparently his campaign was worse because he actually performed worse than Hillary Clinton did. So to kind of give you an example as <laughs> to what type of campaign John Ossoff ran, this is literally one of the ads that he chose to run. So needless to say, he ran a terrible campaign, and as a result, the Democratic Party's base in this district was not galvanized to come out and support him, and that's because he chose to run as a Republican light candidate, and as a result, turnout was low. So only 58% of eligible voters chose to participate in the election, and I'll repeat myself, I say this probably every week, but when turnout is low, Republicans win, when turnout is high, Democrats win. Basically, winning an election comes down to Democrats 
galvanizing their core base, but they failed to do that here. John Ossoff excited nobody. He was just marginally better than his Republican opponent, and nine times out of ten, if you give someone the option of a Republican and Republican light, they'll most likely opt for the Republican. But Democrats are incapable of learning their lesson. They think that because this is a traditionally Republican district that they actually need to run to the right. But if anything, Democrats should be running as populists even more in these types of districts because progressive policies are supported by a majority of the country. And populism is what excites your base. So if you can get out all of the Democratic voters or left-leaning independents in this particular district, you can win. So if anything, you don't run to the right in these districts because you need your base here more than ever. But uh, they chose to stay home because John Ossoff wasn't really offering them anything different than Karen Handel. He was marginally better. So just being simply a little bit less shitty than the Republican, it never ends well for Democrats, but they just refuse to learn their lesson. If you run as a true progressive, you improve your odds. We've seen this time and again. And as this tweet shows, progressives like James Thompson and Rob Quist actually performed better than Hillary Clinton in their districts, while Ossoff, a neoliberal centrist, actually performed worse than Hillary Clinton. And it's possible that Quist and Thompson would have won if the DNC actually put as much effort into supporting their campaigns as they did into John Ossoff's. Now, to add to that argument, Brent Badowski of The Hill writes, National Democrats did not lose the four special elections for House seats since President Trump was elected. They surrendered three without a fight in Montana, South Carolina, and Kansas, and ran a campaign in Georgia that was shallow, risk-averse, and content-free. Democrats win elections by increasing the electorate, registering new voters in large numbers, and building a powerful, unprecedented get-out-the-vote machine for a party that acts like a movement and cause, not merely a collection of consultants making small fortunes through massive television buys for losing Democrats. But even though it's abundantly clear to most of us why John Ossoff lost, well, the Democratic Party, they're kind of sitting here scratching their heads now because they have no clue why he lost. They thought that since they funneled millions of dollars into his campaign, even though he was a terrible candidate, he would still win. So now I'm sitting here, you know, just laughing watching them try to come up with excuses. So, for example, Rachel Maddow on MSNBC, a Democratic Party propagandist, tried to blame his loss on the weather. I'm not joking. If there was a turnout effect from the bad weather today in the district, does that have any partisan implications that you could foresee in terms of what was expected for same-day, election-day voting yeah. uh, in here rather than the early vote? <laughs> <laughs> But Rachel Maddow isn't alone in not knowing why John Ossoff lost because Senate Democrat Chris Murphy, he speculated that, well, maybe if he focused a little bit more on Trump like they do, then he would have won. I mean, it's not that Hillary Clinton already tried this strategy and lost, but, you know, that's that's let's hear what he has to say. Um, I, you know, I, I, I am amongst those who doesn't think we should read too much into this, especially because um, whether it was the right decision or the wrong decision, Ossoff decided not to make Trump the, uh, the central focus of uh, that race. Um, and, and listen, um, Republicans are going to do enormous political damage to themselves if they proceed with this health care bill. I think the American public still thinks 
this is theoretical. They're still not sure that Republicans actually are going to jack up everybody's rates by 20 percent, uh, take insurance from 23 million people in order to pass along a tax cut to the very wealthy. I think if they actually go through with this, um, it, it may be the end of their special election run. Now, when it comes to a different Senate Democrat like Kirsten Gillibrand, Hillary Clinton's mini-me, uh, she also had no idea why John Ossoff lost, and she decided to, instead of, you know, answering the question, to just pivot to platitudes. First of all, any insight, takeaways, uh, what we can learn from what happened in Georgia? Well, to me, it means we need a 50-state strategy, and we need to run tough candidates all across this country, because people are fired up, and they want to be heard, and they want things to change. So I think we can run candidates in districts all across the country, and I think we should fight really hard to flip the House. <laughs> Brilliant analysis there, Kirsten. I think that, you know, a 50-state strategy is currently what they're doing, right? Because they're trying to win in Georgia. So she really had nothing of substance to add to the conversation. But uh, prior to this election, Bernie Sanders was on CNN and he talked about John Ossoff and how he wanted John Ossoff to win. But basically, he admitted that John Ossoff doesn't actually have what it takes to win this election. You know, that is a particular district in Georgia, uh, a conservative district been held by Republicans for several decades. But what I also believe is if the Democratic Party is going to turn around its fortune, it's going to have to mobilize people at the grassroots level in 50 states in this country. It needs a progressive agenda to say that we have to raise the minimum wage to a living wage, that we have to join the rest of the industrialized world and guarantee health care to all people as a right, in my view, through a Medicare for all single payer program, that we have got to deal in a very fundamental way with climate change, transform our energy system away from fossil fuel, pay mm -hmm. equity for women. I think if the Democrats are going to be successful, they need a strong progressive agenda that gets working people and young people involved in the political process. Yeah, so obviously John Ossoff failed to do just that. And it's frustrating to me because Bernie Sanders has given Democrats a blueprint on how to run a successful campaign. Bernie made up a 60-point deficit, he was unknown, and he almost defeated Hillary Clinton in a rigged primary. So he's given them this gift on how to run a good campaign and not lose every single time to Republicans, but they fail to listen to anything he has to say. And while Democrats are currently completely clueless and frustrated as to why John Ossoff lost, I want them to be educated by someone like Nina Turner, who lays out exactly why he lost. That district is very much a Republican stronghold. I think also the message was is that people are not looking for folks to run Republican light. Either you are going to run on the values of the Democratic Party, be authentic, be authentic about those principles and those values, or you're not. But people don't want a substitute for the real thing. Again, if, if you want to run as a Republican, run as a Republican. You know, I think Einstein defined insanity when he said it's doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. Again, the Democrats really need to do an autopsy, Paul J. I really do believe that. And I don't know what it's going to take. You know, I was quoted in the New York Times saying that the Democratic Party hashtag not woke yet. And that is still my hashtag on Wednesday. Uh, after that election. And then the Republicans have won six of the last special elections, even, even with someone like Mr. Trump in the White House, who has, what, a 35% approval rating at this point in the country, that we can see even the, some of the erosion from his own base at this point in June of 2017, and Republicans still won six 
of the last spe special elections. Hashtag not woke yet Democrats. And I don't know what it's going to take. Yeah. I don't either, Nina. I think that this strategy where they continuously run to the right in red districts, it's led to their complete annihilation. I mean, they've lost a thousand seats in legislatures across the country, and they still continue to do the same exact, exact strategy. So I think that at this point, the party is hopeless. Unless it just gets completely taken over by justice Democrats, there's no hope. And we need to also be pushing for a people's party who is just unabashedly progressive, and they're so progressive that they force the Democratic Party to move back to the left, otherwise they'll start losing ground to the People's Party. So, something's got to change. Like I said, they've been calling for the ousting of Nancy Pelosi, but if you think they're going to get anyone better than Nancy Pelosi, uh, I, I believe Steny Hoyer is next in line, so I mean, <laughs> they're completely clueless, but the answer is simple. Uh, one, you do have to change your leadership, but don't put up Nancy Pelosi's mini-me like Steny Hoyer. Put up a true progressive in a leadership position. And second of all, just start running progressive candidates. If you are a neoliberal Republican light, your base isn't going to come out to support you. And the Republican voters aren't going to be lured in by this fake Republican. They're just going to vote for the actual Republican. I don't understand why they can't get this. So as you all know, Senate Republicans are trying to fast track their so-called health care bill through the Senate. And according to Axios, Mitch McConnell is trying to force a vote on it by July 4th. Now, up until this point, they've hit this bill away, not just from Democrats and the public, but also from Republicans. So they, they've kept it a secret, and now they're going to try to push it through the Senate as fast as they possibly can. Now, only a handful of Republican lawmakers knew what was in the Senate version of the bill up until today. And because the House version has a 17% approval rating, it's pretty easy to see why they were embarrassed about their own bill. So we're going to talk about what's in the bill, but first of all, I want to talk about how their lack of transparency with this bill makes them completely hypocritical, because in contrast, when you look at the Affordable Care Act and the debate that occurred before that was passed, The Week explains Republicans claimed that the Affordable Care Act had been rammed through Congress without anyone understanding what it was about, which is kind of like saying that the tortoise flew by the hare before that poor innocent bunny could get started on the race. In fact, the ACA was debated vigorously for an entire year. There were 79 public hearings in the House and even more in the Senate as the bill moved through multiple committees. Hundreds of amendments, many proposed by Republicans, were considered, and near the end, the Senate spent 25 straight days debating it on the floor. So, there was a healthy debate about the Affordable Care Act, but they still complained. However, when it comes to their own bill and the lack of transparency surrounding that, well, it's perfectly fine if they release their shitty so-called health care bill just a couple of weeks before they're going to ram it through the Senate. So, Bernie Sanders took the time to explain why this is problematic on MSNBC. I am speechless when I try to describe what is going on here because it is really literally unbelievable. Chris, we're talking about, in terms of health care, one-sixth of the American economy, trillions of dollars. You're talking about an issue that impacts virtually every single American in our country. And in the midst of all of this, you have a process by which right now, perhaps a dozen Republicans are the only people in America who know what is being talked about, what the new bill might look like. Most Republicans don't even know it, let alone anybody in the Democratic caucus. This is outrageous beyond outrageous. This is unprecedented 
I think, in the history of modern America, that you have a bill of such consequence where there is not one hearing. I'm a member of the Health Education Committee. No hearings, no public debate. What will likely happen is that at the very last moment, on the day of the vote, Mitch McConnell will present a bill. The Republicans will, like sheep, vote for this legislation. And that's what the debate on the most one of the most important issues facing America will be like. It is incomprehensible. So Bernie Sanders obviously wasn't too far off. They're releasing this bill now just a couple of weeks before they're going to vote on it. That's just not enough time. That's unfair. So for a bill that has this low of an approval rating, that's all the more reason to really bring it to the spotlight and let the American people pick it apart and let Democrats and other Republicans pick it apart. But they're embarrassed about their own bill. And now we know why. It's because when you look at the bill, because parts of the bill leaked, It's still horrific. So Slate explains, according to the Washington Post, which cites a discussion draft circulating Wednesday afternoon among aides and lobbyists, the plan looks much like the Obamacare repeal legislation passed last month in the House, with a few key departures. Here's a brief rundown. One, instead of providing Americans tax credits to buy insurance based on their age, as the House bill does, the Senate would offer them based on financial need, which is more or less how Obamacare works. But under the GOP's proposal, fewer Americans would qualify for help. Under the Affordable Care Act, households can receive insurance subsidies if they earn up to 400% of the poverty line. Senate Republicans would lower that threshold to 350%. Subsidies will also be smaller for those who still qualify. In short, it sounds like McConnell's working group is keeping Obamacare's subsidy structure but making it stingier. It is unclear who this will please. Second, the Senate bill eliminates all of Obamacare's taxes except the Cadillac tax on expensive health plans. This will please the medical device makers, investors, high earners, and insurance companies that were taxed by the ACA. Third, it rolls back Obamacare's Medicaid expansion more gradually than the House bill, according to the Post, though how much more gradually is unclear. Fourth, what about consumer protections? The House bill notoriously allowed states to opt out of Obamacare's insurance regulations, such as rules barring carriers from discriminating against patients with pre-existing conditions or requiring them to cover certain services. Sensing that it might be politically suicidal to strip cancer and heart patients of their protections, Senate moderates have reportedly resisted going down that path. Right now, it's unclear who won the argument. Fifth, the Senate bill would kill funding for Planned Parenthood, but still bar the government from subsidizing private insurance that pays for abortions, which will infuriate religious conservatives. So it's important to note that we still don't have all the details, but this is what they've done. So after listening to feedback from the public and knowing that the House version of the same bill got a 17% approval rating, uh, they decided to hear us out and then change basically nothing. So uh, they are they're shameless. Now by some analyses of the Senate version, you can make the case that when you look at specific components of this bill, it's actually worse than the House version. So once we get all the details, then we can actually do a more comprehensive breakdown. But for now, not much has changed, and it's still an awful bill that must be opposed. Uh, But nonetheless, the Republican Party, they're basically giving us a more shittier version of the Affordable Care Act. So after learning that the ACA doesn't work, they're saying, well, here's the ACA just stripped most of the good things that made it somewhat better. 
I mean, it's unbelievable to me. They have no common sense, but what they're trying to do here is they want to repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act just so that way they can check off that box, the repeal Obamacare box, and then brag to their constituents and say, look, we repealed Obamacare. We kept our promise. When they're not actually looking qualitatively at what will happen if they do repeal the Affordable Care Act with this abomination of a bill. It's not a health care bill. As Bernie Sanders previously argued, it's not a health care bill if you strip health insurance away from millions of Americans. It's an anti-health care bill. So what the Republican Party is trying to do, they want to be able to keep their promise, but at the same time, they can't do anything that would actually expand health insurance to Americans or lower the prices because they've completely sold out to their donors. So they can't do anything that would rock the boat too much because they want to make sure that they still get those campaign contributions. So they want to gut a lot of the protections that was offered to us with the Affordable Care Act. Um... And the American people, they know what's going on and they're not buying it. Hence why you see protests at GOP town halls. It's why the bill in the House has a 17% approval rating. And when you look at the Fox News poll done on the House version of this bill, it got a 21% approval rating. So the overwhelming majority of even Republicans aren't on board with what they're doing. Because who is it again that is the... Republican Party's most loyal voting demographic, it's older people. And what they're doing, stripping provisions that take away health insurance from older people, I mean, that's there's going to be political ramifications for this. So make no mistake about it. If they really do ram this bill through the Senate and it passes and Trump signs it, uh, there's going to be hell to pay. There will be political fallout and this will end some careers. Uh, so this bill is a catastrophe. And the fact that they were hiding it away from us up until this point is an abomination. So um, we're going to have to fight again. Please call your senator. Let him or her know that this bill cannot stand because if it does go through, it's going to be a really tough couple of years until we can move towards a replacement plan for this bill because this 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 won't stand. This will not stand. I think this will catalyze a monumental shift towards single payer, but at the same time, what we have to go through to get to single payer, it's just there's too much death and destruction that will take place. So I think we can get to single payer without having this bill repealed. So we've got to fight this. Call your senator immediately. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell will soon be forcing a vote on the Senate version of the Republicans' repeal and replacement to the Affordable Care Act, which not just throws millions of people off of their current health insurance plans, but makes drastic cuts to Medicaid. Now, to protest what they will be voting on in the coming weeks, presumably, there were individuals from a disabled group that staged what they called a die-in outside of Senator Mitch McConnell's office, uh, and they wanted to protest specifically the cuts that this bill makes to Medicaid, because the message that they ultimately wanted to communicate was that if you do in fact pass this bill and cut Medicaid, this will be a death sentence for them. So they were there to literally fight for their lives, and again, they were disabled, and in fact, many of them were in wheelchairs, but that didn't stop Capitol Police from deeming them as threats, and not just escorting them out, but actually arresting a handful of them. So according to the Huffington Post, Capitol Police forcibly removed protesters gathered outside Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell's office on Thursday, with at least one photo showing drops of blood on the hallway floor. The crowd was protesting the healthcare bill that Senate Republicans had written in secret at McConnell's direction. Judging by photos and video from reporters, the senator's staffers didn't appreciate their presence. 
Police reportedly arrested more than 20 protesters, many of whom were in wheelchairs and on respirators. So here's more pictures from the event. And as I've stated, somebody was injured due to the drops of blood that were on the floor. And of course, Capitol Police had to haul all of them off because look at how threatening they are in their wheelchairs with respirators hooked up. I mean, how dare these people protest a bill that would literally put their lives in jeopardy? So, you know, kudos to these people because what they did was incredibly brave. Now, I do want to cut to a video of the event. People with disabilities cannot bear the brunt of these cuts, and the only reason these cuts to Medicaid are in this bill at all is to pay for tax cuts to the wealthiest Americans. So this was one of the biggest embarrassments to the Republican Party that I think they've faced in the last couple of years. I mean, you had disabled people in wheelchairs, on respirators, show up to protest your horrific bill that only 17% of the public approves of, and they're crying out for help because this bill would literally be a death sentence for many of them, and they were viewed as threats. Their arms were tied behind their backs. And 20 of them were arrested. That's just, that's insane to me. What a great look for the Republican Party. This is what they stand for. They stand for arresting disabled people who are fighting for their lives when Republicans put their lives in jeopardy by making drastic cuts to programs that help them. This is the state of American politics. It's completely despicable. And I just want to say really quickly how proud I am of each and every single one of these protesters because if they can get out and protest... There's no excuse for any of us because I have someone in my family, my father, who actually is in a wheelchair and it's 
leaving the house is incredibly difficult. Not only do you have to call ahead of times to make sure that businesses and uh, whatnot accommodate wheelchair accessibility, but you really can't visit friends unless their house is wheelchair accessible. You have to make sure there's no stairs. It's incredibly difficult. It's a headache. So the fact that there were that many of them there and they protested Mitch McConnell, I mean, I am so proud of them. This is really inspiring to me because this is democracy in action right there. They are standing up for themselves. They're fighting for their lives. They're saying, look, we do not approve of these drastic cuts that you're making to a program that allows us to survive, to get medical treatment. Um, so this is honestly, even though they were treated badly, it's still inspiring that they did this anyway. The fact that they were willing to put themselves out there, um, it showed the strength that we have in numbers. They made national news attention, and the Republicans were completely embarrassed by this. Mitch McConnell should be hiding his face right now because of this event and how Capitol Police handled the event. I mean, arresting people in wheelchairs. That's what the Republican Party is about. And uh, again, I want to go back to a line here in the article. Um, so it says, judging by the photos and video from reporters, the senator's staffers didn't appreciate their presence. Too bad. Uh, we don't appreciate what you're doing or what the senator who you're working for is doing at the behest of health insurance industry donors. They're trying to screw all of us over. Uh, one, to appease their donors, and two, so that way they could check off a box and say, hey, we, we repealed the Affordable Care Act, uh, so we kept our promise, vote for us again. Uh, when, <laughs> if you look at what they're doing, they're replacing the Affordable Care Act with the shittier version of the Affordable Care Act. I mean, what the American people want makes no difference in their consideration of bills and laws. They just don't care. Because again, 17% of the population approves of this shitty, draconian, so-called healthcare bill, when really it's an anti-healthcare bill because it strips healthcare away from citizens, uh, but they're doing it anyway. If you have a bill that only 17% of the country approves of, if you want to keep your job, you reverse course immediately. You come up with something else. But I mean, what can they possibly come up with? I mean, if you if you come up with anything other than a public option or single payer, you are stripping healthcare away from citizens. You're making access to healthcare more difficult. So the Republican Party is a joke. And this event today, this die-in that they staged, really shines a light on how despicable the Republican Party really is. I mean, come on, arresting people in wheelchairs. <laughs> they should be ashamed of themselves, but they're not. They have no shame. We don't know about the fate of the Republican Party's so-called health care bill. We also don't have all of the details about the bill itself, but we know enough to understand that if this does pass, it would be an unmitigated disaster. So obviously, the Democratic Party being the main opposition party to the Republicans, they have to fight with everything they've got. They've got to fight tooth and nail to make sure that this doesn't go through because this would be a bill that harms the American people. Now, thankfully, they've actually done a relatively good job at trying to fight this bill. So, for example, they recently staged an all-night protest and they held the Senate floor and talked about why this bill is bad and dangerous for the American people. However, the problem is that resisting the passage of this bill, that's just one component to them being successful. Because I think that if you really want to make sure that they lose and they don't ever even try to initiate this battle again, you've got to counter with something that will get them to shut up and scare them. And that's single payer. But the problem is that the Democratic Party is bought off by their donors in the health insurance industry. And they've been reluctant to get on board with single payer 
and hell, most of them, they're not even willing to endorse a public option, let alone single payer. So it's frustrating that they're really waging a war on one front when they should be waging it on all fronts. And the other component of resistance, I think, is pushing single payer relentlessly. But nonetheless, I mean, I will give them credit where credit is due because they are, in fact, trying to defeat this bill. And that's a good thing. But when it comes to single payer, even the most progressive senators in the country haven't officially got on board. I mean, Bernie Sanders introduced a health care bill in 2013 called S-1782, which would create a single-payer health care system, and it has zero co-sponsors. So even Elizabeth Warren and Jeff Merkley did not get on board. However, recently, they've had a change of heart, and both Jeff Merkley and Elizabeth Warren have come out swinging in support of single-payer. So they are now doing something that I think is really strong, it's really powerful, and is the ultimate antidote to the poison that is this Republican health care bill. So I want to say this, we not only need to save what we have and not go backwards, we need to create a better health care system. Every country in the world says as a right of citizenship, you have the opportunity to have affordable quality health care and by the way basically free health care for basic services how about if we have medicare for all here in america so make no mistake about it that right there is the most effective way you are going to stop this bill from going through you not just fight it and vote against it, but you say, we are now actually moving the goalpost. We're going to be pushing for single payer, and I think that that is the smartest thing you can possibly do. Now, also, Elizabeth Warren, so she recently had a discussion with Bernie Sanders about the GOP healthcare plan, and initially I was really apprehensive about watching it because I just knew that I would be disappointed in Elizabeth Warren, and, you know, it would be a milquetoast discussion about healthcare in general, and that she wouldn't actually make an endorsement for single payer, but I stand corrected. Towards the end of the video, uh, she came out in support of single payer. But I agree that now is the time to put on the table the fundamental question, move to single payer. I think that the American people have seen and what's unfolded around health care over the last eight years, that health care isn't a privilege, that health care is a basic human right. And I think we've got a lot more support nationally uh, we do. to yeah, move yeah, to a health care system that works for and everyone. And let me just say, I will be introducing, as I have in the past, a single-payer system. And the reasons are pretty obvious. Number one, I happen to believe, you happen to believe, that health care is a right for yep. all people. Yep. Number two, it is absurd that the function of our current health care system creates a situation where the drug companies and the insurance companies and the medical equipment supplies make unbelievable profits, yeah. okay? And we end up spending at least twice as much mm -hmm. as any other country on earth per capita. What mm -hmm. sense is that? For, for not better results. Right, that's right. The if result, we were getting twice as good a result, then we'd in have that of, conversation, but we're not. In terms of infant mortality, in terms mm -hmm. of life expectancy and other mm -hmm. healthcare results, we're behind many other yeah. countries. So we're spending a lot we're not getting a whole lot. And I think we have got to move toward a Medicare for all single payer program. So we'll work together on that. So look, as someone who's been incredibly critical of Elizabeth Warren, but also, you know, has praised her on many occasions, I'll give her credit where credit is due. This is a gigantic step in the right direction. And her and Jeff Merkley are now on the correct side of history. So as progressives, you know, prior to them announcing their support for single payer recently, I don't know if they were just too afraid 
to support single payer or if they just didn't support single payer, generally speaking. But the fact that they're on board now, it's really, really important. It shows the effect that Bernie Sanders is having on political discourse in this country. And it's really surprising that they weren't on board with this uh, sooner. But I mean, again, the country, we've really seen this cultural shift between uh, now and the start of the Democratic Party primaries when Bernie Sanders was just advocating for single-payer relentlessly. So this is, this is huge. This is really, really good news. It shows that there is hope for us to actually get a single-payer system in the near future because we now have some of the most progressive senators in the country advocating for it. And when you also take into consideration the fact that a majority of Democrats in the House of Representatives have now co-sponsored H.R. 676, which is John Conyers' bill that would solidify a Medicare for All system permanently, things are looking up. Things are looking up for progressives. It looks like single-payer it's not something that's unattainable anymore. It's actually a real possibility. Uh, the only thing that I will add is that Bernie Sanders has got to introduce uh, or reintroduce his Medicare for All bill because he's been saying he's going to do it for months now and he hasn't done it. And grassroots activists, we've got to have an actual bill. We need something that's tangible because when we petition senators at town halls to support Medicare for All, we can't tell them to co-sponsor a particular bill. But if you actually introduce a bill and we say co-sponsor this specific bill, S-1782, then I think that will actually empower us at the grassroots level. So Bernie, <laughs> chop chop, let's 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 make it happen. Re release um, or reintroduce the bill. Uh, let's fight for it because now is the time. So look, in the end, I, I've been critical of Elizabeth Warren. I've even been moderately critical of Jeff Merkley. Um, and hell, I've been critical of Bernie Sanders too. I think we have to be objective and hold progressives accountable. But this is a gigantic step in the right direction. And for someone who, for people who are self-proclaimed progressive, for senators who say they're progressive, this shouldn't be news. It should just be a given that they're in favor of single pair. But nonetheless, credit where credit is due. Thank you to both of them for getting on board. It's the right thing to do. Last week, we learned that there will be no justice for Philando Castile when we found out that his murderer, Officer Yanez, was acquitted on manslaughter charges. Now, after we learned about this verdict, there were more details that emerged about the case. Uh, and the details, they range from completely angering to just downright heartbreaking. So first of all, they did release the dash cam footage that gives us a little bit more insight as to what happened. So we'll show you that and then talk about it afterwards. Well, sir. Good. How are you? Good. Uh, reason I put you over, you, your brake lights are out. So you only have one activated active brake light, and that's going to be your passenger side one, your third brake light, which is up here on top. And then this one back here is going to be out. You have your license and shirt? Sir, I have to tell you, I do have a okay. firearm okay. on me. Don't reach for it then. Don't pull it out. Don't pull it out. Get the man here, call three! Shots fired! 
So towards the end of the video, you can hear Fulando's fiance, Diamond Reynolds, start to talk about the incident, and that's when she started to live stream what happened. So as you can see by the footage here, Fulando was pulled over because one of his brake lights were out, and he was incredibly polite, the conversation in general was cordial, but when the officer asked for his identification, Fulando did the responsible thing, and he told the officer that his ID was in his wallet, which was in the compartment with the registered firearm. And when he proceeded to grab his ID after actually notifying the officer about the gun, the officer then shot him multiple times. That killed him. So the cop said, don't pull out the gun. And Philando said that he wasn't because obviously he was trying to comply and give the officer his license. So Philando Castile did every single thing Right. He did everything he was supposed to do. He was polite. He complied. But yet, the officer still shot and killed him. So if you're wondering what could possibly possess this officer to shoot this polite man who was exercising his right to own a gun and was not planning to use that gun on the officer... Well, we learned about his defense. So, the Washington Post explains the officer who fatally shot Philando Castile during a traffic stop last year told investigators that the smell of burnt marijuana in Castile's car made him believe his life was in danger. I thought I was going to die, Officer Geronimo Yanez told investigators from the Minnesota Bureau of Criminal Apprehension 15 hours after the shooting. And I thought if he's if he has the, the guts and the audacity to smoke marijuana in front of a five-year-old girl and risk her lungs and risk her life by giving her secondhand smoke and the front seat passenger doing the same thing, then what... What care does he give about me? And I let off the rounds, and then after the rounds were off, the little girl was screaming. 
But officers' claims of safety concerns about marijuana are difficult to reconcile with what researchers know about the effects of marijuana use. Numerous studies have demonstrated marijuana tends to decrease aggression in people under its effects. Both drug policy experts and the general public rate marijuana use as less harmful to individuals and society than the use of most other drugs, particularly alcohol. Yanez's statement is somewhat puzzling, conflating secondhand smoke exposure with a clear and present danger to an officer's life. Yanez's attorney nevertheless attempted to convince a judge that the manslaughter case should be thrown out because Castile was stoned and hence partially culpable in his own death. So that's why he felt justified in murdering Philando Castile. Because he smelt burnt marijuana. The stupidity in such a statement, it, it blows my mind. Uh, and he's making this assumption that Philando and Diamond smoked marijuana in front of this girl, but you can't prove that. Perhaps they smoked it before they left the house and the smell was still lingering. But even if it's the case that they were smoking marijuana in front of their daughter, wouldn't you say that it's more harmful for that little girl to watch her father be murdered in front of her than marijuana smoke? I mean, what type of logic is this? There's no logic. There's no reason. It's completely unreasonable. But this officer feels justified in murdering Philando Castile because of the fucking burnt marijuana smell. I mean, I can't even say it without getting angry. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. So, he's not sorry, in other words, and, you know, the attorneys of this murderer feel as though the cop was justified in killing Philando Castile because of the burnt marijuana smell, and that made him dangerous. Yes, because there's so many people, you know, running around the country, going on these killing sprees after they smoke marijuana. If anything, the smell of marijuana should make you feel safe, dipshit, because that makes people more docile. So, um, that's the angering part of the story. But what I'm going to get to now is the heartbreaking part of the story because authorities released footage of the little girl when Diamond was in the cop car uh, talking to her mom. I don't know that I've seen anything more heartbreaking than that. That poor little girl is going to be scarred for life now because of what that police officer did. I don't even know what to say. Um, that's just that's just heartbreaking. So let's kind of go through the details here. So. Um, 
The citizen, Philando Castile in this case, was murdered by an officer of the state, Officer Yanez, because one, he smelled burnt marijuana, and two, he had a weapon, which he had a license for, uh, and three, let's be honest here, it was because he was black. So the thing about the Second Amendment that we're not often educated about is that it only applies to white people. White people can hold up guns and walk through the public and, you know, that's perfectly fine. There's really a minimal amount of controversy. But if a black person tries to exercise their Second Amendment right and have a firearm, which they're perfectly legally allowed to do, then the police officer will view them as a threat and kill them. Black people aren't allowed to exercise their Second Amendment right and be responsible firearm owners because this is what happens to them. They're shot and killed even if they comply and tell the officer that they have a gun. Now, one of the most fascinating aspects of the story is that at the time that I'm recording this on June 23rd, uh, the biggest defender in the country of the Second Amendment, the NRA, has been silent. So according to the Washington Post, the organization had been quick to defend other gun owners who made national news, but Castile had a valid permit for his firearm, reportedly told the officer about the gun to avoid a confrontation, and was fatally shot anyway after being told to hand over his license. So some NRA members were furious when the organization released a tepid statement more than a day after the shooting that merely called it troublesome and promised that the NRA will have more to say once all the facts are known. A year later, the investigation is over and many more facts are known. Police recordings and court records confirmed initial reports that Castile had tried to defuse the situation, assuring the officer that he wasn't reaching for his weapon. So we know it's a very clear case of someone being shot because they were black and they had a gun. But the NRA, you know, for an organization that proclaims themselves as America's foremost defender of the Second Amendment, well, apparently that's only the case if you're white. But I want to get back to the unjust verdict because, you know, the NRA hypocrisy is just one aspect of the story. So uh, the laws in this country are rigged in favor of police officers who commit acts of violence against citizens arbitrarily. So Sean King of New York Daily News writes, The laws bend over backwards to protect police no matter how foul and outrageous the circumstance. Make no mistake, the circumstances here are as foul and outrageous as they get. But Officer Yanez claimed he feared for his life. And how can a jury prove him wrong? It's nearly impossible. Even if this jury was righteous and despised police brutality, they'd still have their hands and their hearts tied behind their back because of the terrible laws which allow police to be brutal with only a microscopic chance of ever being held accountable. We basically have to have a recording of an officer saying they enjoyed the shooting and that they are going to lie about being afraid in order for them to be convicted. Otherwise, whatever they claim goes. That's correct. So what we need is true criminal justice reform and these officers need sensitivity training. They need to know how to deal with citizens and not be so reactive to people who are not a threat to you. I mean, if you're a police officer, you should be serving and protecting. You should be diffusing situations. But you escalated there and you killed, you murdered Philando Castile. And now you're going to walk away uh, as a free man. It, the injustice here is just, it's heartbreaking.
President Donald Trump's contempt for the poor has been on full display ever since he was sworn into office, and this isn't something that's really surprising because we all knew before he was elected that he was a corrupt, greedy billionaire. But it's problematic because during the campaign, he ran as a populist who claimed to be someone who supports the working class. Now, we all knew that that was bullshit, but ever since he was elected, he's moved away from the anti-establishment rhetoric that he espoused on the campaign trail, and he's shown that he doesn't care about the poor, and he only wants to serve the rich and himself. So, for example, he immediately appointed people from Wall Street to his administration, and recently, he actually defended his decision to do this with a justification that proves just how much he really hates the poor. And it is completely sickening. So according to CNBC, they report that President Donald Trump has offered a simple explanation for his wealthy cabinet choices. Rich people know how to manage money better than poor people do. In a rambling aside at a rally in Iowa on Wednesday night, Trump responded to criticism about his choices for top economic jobs, including billionaire investor Wilbur Ross for Commerce Secretary and former Goldman Sachs President Gary Cohn for Chief Economic Advisor. Trump, who bashed Goldman Sachs during the presidential campaign, received backlash for choosing wealthy Wall Street figures for top administration posts. Many of his nominees had complex financial holdings around the world, which created myriad potential conflicts. Trump contended on Wednesday that wealthy people can better run the U.S. economy because they do not need money. And he went on to explain verbatim, so somebody said, why did you appoint a rich person to be in charge of the economy? I said, because that's the kind of thinking we want. I mean, you know, really, because they're representing the country. They don't want the money. They're representing the country and they had to give up a lot to take these jobs. They gave up a lot. And you get the president. This is the president of Goldman Sachs. Smart. Having him represent us, he went from massive paydays to peanuts to little tiny. I'm waiting for them to accuse him of wanting that little amount of money. They wanted that, but these are people that are great, brilliant business minds, and that's what we need. That's what we have so the world doesn't take. We can't have the world taking advantage of us anymore. And I love all people, rich or poor, but in those particular positions, I just don't want a poor person. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? If you insist, I'll do it, but I like it better this way, right? So reading any quotes from Donald Trump verbatim is very difficult because he struggles to string together a coherent sentence, but hearing him talk about how, you know, uh, poor people, they're just not as smart as rich people. While he sounds like a fucking caveman, it's just mind-boggling to me. It makes me so angry. I mean, if you're going to talk about how superior the rich are to the poor, Maybe improve your vocabulary, at least marginally. I mean, Jesus Christ, he sounds like a literal caveman. So what he's doing here is he's making two arguments. One, he is saying that rich people are smarter than poor people because they have more money. That's what he's implying. Uh, and second of all, he's saying that they aren't corrupt because they're taking less money in this government position. So there's no way that there could possibly be a conflict of interest. Now, again, I'm kind of filling in the blanks because what he said here is <laughs> it's really incoherent and difficult to ascertain what he's trying to say. But nonetheless, this is the argument that he's making. Those are the two points. So when it comes to his insistence that rich people are just better with money and therefore presumably smarter than poor people, I unequivocally reject that claim. Rich people are not smarter than poor people. They're not. That's factually incorrect, and Donald Trump 
It's perhaps the best example to show that just because you have money doesn't mean that you are smart or have class even. So this wealthy buffoon who can barely string together a sentence that makes any sense whatsoever is saying, you know, rich people like him, they're just, they know more than us, they're better than us, they're smarter than us, they're just superior in every single way. So we should allow them to control our government, even though I reeled against that during the campaign and am a gigantic hypocrite, but I mean, that's what we should do. We should allow the smart to govern the country. And additionally, what he's ignoring is the fact that wealth is often generational, meaning you're born into it like donald trump his daddy left him millions upon millions of dollars we all didn't get that head start we are struggling i mean for a million dollars could you imagine what a family could do with a million dollars he was born into that and he still went bankrupt multiple times and this imbecile is sitting here telling us that rich people are better with money this guy has so much nerve i mean what an asshole what a complete asshole he is claiming that the rich are superior to the poor go fuck yourself donald trump now let's get to the second part of his argument he says that you know they are they're not corrupt because they're taking less money so the fact that they are leaving their cushy jobs as ceos and coming to work for him you know the gary Cohn, the president of goldman sachs he can't possibly look out for anyone but the american people he's principled because he took this pay cut Right. Nobody's really making that argument, but what you're missing is the fact that we have this revolving door in Washington where they leave their job as a CEO on Wall Street, they go and work for government, regulate the industry they came from, and then they go right back to that same industry. So the fact that he's taking money, less money now, doesn't mean dick when you consider the payoff he's going to get when he inevitably goes back to Goldman Sachs or Wall Street. So Donald Trump... He has a fundamental misunderstanding of the way the world works, and he is proof that rich people are not smarter than poor people. Money does not equal smarts, and it certainly doesn't equal worth. We are all equal human beings. We all shit. Our shit stinks. We all are humans. We all bleed red. So to say that because someone has money makes them superior, that's complete bullshit. So at this point, I really don't know how many examples I need to give you to demonstrate how Donald Trump is a puppet of corporate America, but nonetheless, we've got another one. So do you know how pharmaceutical industries are literally blackmailing governments and extorting citizens to boost profits? Well, Donald Trump will be signing an executive order that will make it easier for them to do that. Talk about winning. There's been a lot of winning since he's been elected, but it's not for you and me. It's for big business and now big pharma. So according to Business Insider, the New York Times reports that the Trump White House is about to put out an executive order on drug pricing, and it looks as if the whole thing were basically written by big pharma. In other words, America, we've just been sold out on the price of drugs. According to the report and similar reporting from Kaiser Health News and Politico, a draft executive order includes nothing to curb prices. Instead, drug companies would be in line to get more power to charge monopoly prices over overseas and be allowed to give even fewer discounts to hospitals with poor patients, and the administration is promising to roll back regulations that pharma has complained about. This can all be traced back to a meeting President Donald Trump had with pharmaceutical CEOs back in January. There, he basically outlined that he would be doing everything that's in the draft executive order, but he also told executives, you have to keep your prices down. That was it. 
Then, they all got in their private jets and flew back to their corner offices. That day, the Nasdaq Biotechnology Index had its best day in weeks, gaining nearly 3% as the market indicated that no one was afraid of the big bad Trump. Now, to be fair, there is one tiny measure in Trump's draft executive order that seems to hint at helping, basically taking PBM rebates out of Medicare. Of course, it's unclear how this order would tackle that, as there are no specifics and this would have to be legislated. Another interesting idea mentioned in the proposed order is value-based drug pricing, paying drug companies for the value a drug brings to society or an individual. That could be a killer for some drug companies that make incredibly expensive drugs for rare diseases, but again, nothing concrete on that measure. This toothless executive order is the result of asking some of the richest CEOs in America what to do about a problem they don't want to solve, and it settles something about the Trump administration. If you were hoping that the populist Trump from the campaign trail would keep some of the promises he made to his base, you can stop now. Trump is not for his base. He's not for anyone. He's a corporatist, and he will continue letting corporations make decisions that his White House is either too lazy or too incompetent to make to the detriment of Americans, whether they voted for him or not. Not. Yeah, so I don't know what happened to the populist rhetoric, but if you voted for Donald Trump, you can feel pretty stupid right about now because this is something that obviously will not benefit anyone. So Donald Trump has proven time and again that he is a corporate puppet and his voters still trust him. And I, I don't get it. And look, not to just harp on Donald Trump, this is the Republican way. Donald Trump is uh, he's an establishment Republican. So this is what any Republican president would probably do. So I don't I don't understand how people can still justify voting Republican. The Democratic Party is garbage. We all know that. But to vote Republican is you voting against your own interests. They don't like you. They want nothing to do with you. They are elected only to serve the interests of their donors. They don't care about you. They don't care about pharmaceutical prices. And I love how Donald Trump, he stated in here... Uh, or it states in here that he told them that the prices have got to come down. Oh, yeah, I'm sure they're going to listen to you, Donald Trump. It reminds me of when Hillary Clinton allegedly went to Wall Street and she said, hey, you cut it out. I mean, this is the type of <laughs> people that we have running the country. People who are completely spineless and unwilling to stand up to the large multinational corporations after Donald Trump berated his own colleagues and peers for doing what he's doing now. Donald Trump is a snake oil salesman. He's gone back on basically every single one of his promises, with the exception of a couple, and um, his voters still stick by his side, proving that they are on Team Trump. They don't care about the policy substance. They don't care that he ran as a populist. They care about, you know, their team winning. So it's it's incredibly frustrating because we we see this phenomenon on the left with Hillary Clinton and her being the, just this god to people like Peter Dow and Neera Tannen, but we also see it, see it on the right as well. They both had their heads so far up the person who they admire's asses that they can't even see sunlight anymore. And they say that we do this with Bernie Sanders. They say that we're a cult of personality with Bernie Sanders and we follow him like he's a cult leader. I call out Bernie Sanders all the time. So do Bernie Sanders' own supporters. So I think that the people who are making this claim, they need to look in the mirror. What Donald Trump just did here or what he's about to do in signing this executive order it's awful. There's no way you can justify it. He's just straight up doing the bidding of big pharma CEOs, and he should be ashamed of himself. And if you voted for Trump and still support him, it's time to look in the mirror because you're a hack. You are a hack if you voted for Donald Trump and you still support him. You should be embarrassed. 
Since President Donald Trump decided to unilaterally escalate tensions between the United States and Russia by bombing a Syrian airfield, I think those of us who have been paying attention to the situation knew that we were going to be in for a terrifying couple of years. And when you combine that with the vigorous saber-rattling by Democrats and Republicans, the prospect of a new Cold War seems long gone. It just seems like now we're actually in the midst of a new Cold War. And as of late, things took a turn for the worst. So I've been saying we need to de-escalate, de-escalate, because the situation right now is so tense that we don't want to do anything that could potentially catalyze a conflict between the U.S. and Russia in Syria. But unfortunately... Uh, the situation is deteriorating. The New York Times reports long-running tensions between the United States and Russia erupted publicly on Monday as Moscow condemned the American military's downing of a Syrian warplane and threatened to target aircraft flown by the United States and its allies. The Russians also said they had suspended their use of a hotline that the American and Russian militaries used to avoid collisions of their aircraft in Syrian airspace. Russia's warnings could turn out to be posturing. The Russian military has threatened to halt its use of a hotline in the past, notably after Mr. Trump ordered April's missile launch, only to continue and even expand its contacts with the United States military. But in the complicated and quickly unfolding situation in Syria, even bluster can risk an unintended showdown. So basically, Russia is now doing what Hillary Clinton proposed. So... They're saying, we have this area above Syria that if you cross this space, if you violate this no-fly zone that we've set up, we're going to shoot down your plane. Now, this is basically what Hillary Clinton was arguing for. She said that she wants the U.S. to implement a Syrian no-fly zone, and if Russia crosses that, then what do you do? You shoot down their plane, obviously. So, regardless, we got the Syrian no-fly zone. It's just that Russia is the one who's implementing it and not the United States. So, the situation itself is incredibly scary, and as the article states, they could very well be posturing as many big states do but the problem is that we can't risk escalating the situation even if they are posturing the situation is so tense and could be potentially explosive that there's no room for error we can't try to guess what they're thinking we have to take all of their threats seriously and acknowledge that we must now do everything we can to de-escalate the situation and the problem with the united states is that their presence there is making matters worse. We're not helping the situation. We're shooting down Syrian fighter jets that are bombing ISIS and it's pissing off Russia and it's just making the situation worse. So we need to de-escalate. So the New York Times continues, anytime we have multiple armed forces working in the same battle place without deconfliction, there is a dangerous risk of things spinning out of control, said Douglas E. Lute, a retired three-star army general who was the United States representative to NATO until January. Tactical incidents on the ground or in the air over Syria can be misunderstood and lead to miscalculation. American military officials rushed to de-escalate the situation, saying they hoped Russia could be persuaded to keep using the hotline. The Pentagon also vowed to continue airstrikes against the Islamic State in Syria. Now, according to ABC News, the White House press secretary Sean Spicer said the United States will protect its interests in Syria and will do what we can to keep open lines of communication with Russia and Syria. So, in other words... They know that they need to de-escalate, but they're not doing everything they can. Sean Spicer said, you know, we're doing what we can to keep the line of communication open between the United States and Russia, but that, that's not good enough. Doing what you can is not good enough. If you really want to de-escalate the situation, it's simple. You pull out, leave the situation alone. We have no interest in Syria. Get out of there. 
Let Russia fight ISIS. Let Iran fight ISIS. Let Assad fight ISIS. Let's not take on another war. We've been in two wars since before I was old enough to vote. We're now bombing multiple countries, Pakistan, Yemen, Somalia, Afghanistan. I mean, how many countries do we have to invade before we learn our lesson? Our presence is not appreciated by anyone in the world. We're the only ones who thinks that we're doing something good. Syria doesn't want us there. The American people don't want to be there. It's time we get out. So if you truly are serious about de-escalating tensions, you leave. You allow other countries to fight ISIS for us. And the thing that is so frustrating is that I feel bad for the anti-interventionist people who voted for Trump based on this one single issue because he actually, you know, his rhetoric on Syria, it was better than Hillary Clinton's because Hillary, her stance, I mean, the policies that she would implement would escalate the situation and tensions between the U.S. and Russia. But Donald Trump had a more libertarian stance. He thought that the U.S. shouldn't be getting involved. And what did he do? He gets elected starts ramping up wars uh, across the, the world, but certainly in Syria almost immediately. So it's just, it's beyond frustrating. We do not need to do anything to catalyze a new Cold War if we haven't already done that. And certainly, we need to make sure that there's no conflict between the U.S. and Russia and Syria, because I don't think Syria uh, is worth causing World War III over. So, and people like to say that I'm being hyperbolic when I talk about the prospect of World War III, but if I'm being hyperbolic then maybe that's the case. Maybe you're right. But I think that erring on the side of caution is the reasonable thing to do if you're a humanitarian, if you're a humanist, if you're a liberal. Because war between two nuclear-armed countries will be an unmitigated disaster, and I don't even want to think about it. So the answer is to de-escalate completely by pulling out. Will Donald Trump do that? Of course not, because the United States never learns its lesson. So recently, I've been trying to give you weekly updates on net neutrality because I think this is one of the most important battles of our generation. And as you all know, there's a bunch of huge websites like Reddit, Amazon, Pornhub, and now Netflix that have teamed up for an internet-wide day of action to protest the FCC's vote to uh, basically ruin the internet by stripping away net neutrality. Now, there's been a ton of allies in the previous fights, but there's one ally that's been conspicuously silent. And really, their silence is deafening when you consider just how big of an advocate for net neutrality they were back in 2014. I'm talking about Tumblr. So during the 2014 day of action, they actually slowed down their website in protest of net neutrality with a banner on the top saying, stop internet slow lanes from ruining everything. And furthermore, Tumblr CEO David Karp actually met with the last FCC chairman, Tom Wheeler, when he wanted to kill net neutrality and urged him to support Title II instead. But this time, David Karp, for some reason, is remaining silent. And in fact, when press organizations actually asked them to comment on the FCC's current attack on net neutrality, you get radio silence from Tumblr. So there's something really strange going on, and for someone like David Karp, who is the CEO of Tumblr, to not say anything about net neutrality this time after everything he did to fight the FCC the last time? It's really strange, but The Verge does have an answer. They state one reason for CARP and Tumblr's silence. Last week, Verizon completed its acquisition of Tumblr parent company, Yahoo, 
kicking off the subsequent merger of Yahoo and AOL to create a new company called Oath. As one of the world's largest ISPs, Verizon is notorious for challenging the principles of net neutrality. It sued the FCC in an effort to overturn net neutrality rules in 2011, and its general counsel, Kathy Griot, published a note this April complimenting new FCC chairman Ajit Pai's plan to weaken telecommunication regulations. Now, multiple sources tell The Verge that employees are concerned that CARP has been discouraged from speaking publicly on the issue, and one engineer conveyed that CARP told a group of engineers and engineering directors as such in a weekly meeting that took place shortly after SXSW. CARP has talked about the net neutrality stuff internally, but won't commit to supporting it externally anymore, the engineer said. He assures us that he is going to keep trying to fight for the ability to fight for it publicly. CARP did not respond to four emails asking for comment and neither Yahoo nor Tumblr would speak about the matter on record. So understand what's happening here. The CEO of a major company like Tumblr is effectively being silenced because I want to reiterate what the article states. He's going to, quote, fight for the ability to fight for it publicly. So Verizon comes in. And they silence him. They shut him down. So he's no longer allowed as the CEO of Tumblr, presumably if he wants to keep his job, to advocate for net neutrality publicly. What a scumbag company Verizon is. Wow. Now to remind you, Verizon is one of a handful of companies that are actually pushing for an overhaul of the FCC's Title II net neutrality regulations. And FCC Chairman Ajit Pai served as legal counsel to Verizon previously. And when he leaves his job at the FCC, you can bet your ass they'll be rewarding him with a cushy new job and a huge hiring bonus. So this whole entire story just reeks of corruption. And even if corruption weren't an element of the story, well, rolling back net neutrality is still unacceptable because when you look at public opinion polls, the American people are overwhelmingly in favor of keeping net neutrality. In fact, according to a new poll released by The Morning Consult, they explained that with the Federal Communications Commission moving toward repealing Obama-era net neutrality rules, a new poll shows strong bipartisan backing to keep them in place. 60% of respondents in a Morning Consult slash political poll showed that they support rules that say internet service providers like Comcast and Verizon cannot block, throttle, or prioritize certain content on the internet. The difference between supporters by party was two percentage points, with 59% of Republicans and 61% of Democrats backing the rules. So, this is an issue where the American people, they're overwhelmingly in support of one side, and you have the FCC completely ignoring their request, uh, because Pai and uh, the FCC is serving at the behest of their corporate overlords, Comcast and Verizon. And again, if you come from the industry like Ajit Pai did, then you are going to want to regulate that industry in a way that's favorable to them because you want to make sure that when you leave office, you're going to have a job with the same industry you once regulated. It's called the revolving door, and it's just brazen corruption. So the fact that Tumblr, the CEO, is being silenced, I mean, when you have the American people on your side, Speak out, dude. Just speak out. You may lose your job, but if you're a CEO, then you have money. And the fact that, you know, if Verizon certainly is willing to fire you over this, then imagine the press coverage that that would garner and actually help net neutrality. I mean, you're a millionaire already. You're a multimillionaire, if not a billionaire. Just speak out. Get fired. 
do it for the cause. You have enough money to retire. Do the right thing. And and again, I don't want to downplay what David Karp did because in the past, I think that he was definitely instrumental in securing Title II regulations and making sure that the internet was in fact regulated as a utility under the Communications Act of 1934. So I don't want to I don't want to shit all over David right now. But what I do want to do is encourage David to speak out. Speak out regardless of the consequences. Do what's right because this isn't just about your job at Tumblr. This is about democracy now. So you've got to do the right thing, David. Come out in favor of net neutrality. And for Verizon, I mean, they are just a despicable company. I mean, we already knew that, but their true colors are really coming out with this story showing how they're basically trying to strong arm and silence other very powerful CEOs uh, from uh, speaking about this issue. It's sickening. Since the horrific Virginia shooting took place, the media has rushed to blame Bernie Sanders and progressives for it. So, the New York Times recently claimed that Bernie Sanders' rhetoric is inciting violence against Republicans. Now, the most often cited example is Bernie Sanders calling Donald Trump dangerous, but they're ignoring the fact that Bernie Sanders has consistently preached nonviolent resistance, not just recently, but throughout the course of his career. But the New York Times isn't the only outlet who's trying to push this false narrative. So CNN is also doing the same thing, uh, and they're doing it pretty consistently. Case in point. Uh, Senator, as you know, you have not only never advocated violence, you have, you have condemned it repeatedly, um, but you have been speaking the language of revolution for many years. When you see a comment like this from this political consultant, and then you see what happened on Wednesday, are you concerned that some individuals are able to take your rhetoric as a, as a literal call to arms? Well, I think there's sometimes rhetoric on all sides uh, that are not quite acceptable. Um, Jake, my hero, political hero in recent American history is Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And King not only advocated nonviolence, what he understood is that the only way you make real change, whether it is racial justice, uh, whether it is social justice, economic justice, is when millions of people come together, stand up, and fight back. That's what we have to do right now. But we don't do it in a violent way that is unacceptable and, in fact, counterproductive. Now, to be fair, Jake Tapper prefaced the question in a way that gives us a more clear presentation of what Bernie Sanders actually stands for. But nonetheless, he probably asked the question because his corporate bosses at CNN had ordered him to. But, I mean, it still demonstrates how the mainstream media is desperately trying to blame Bernie Sanders for this shooting. But Jake Tapper isn't the only individual at CNN who's pushing this narrative because Wolf Blitzer asked Jane Sanders basically the same question in an interview. Uh, but he was a lot more persistent in trying to blame Bernie Sanders, and he really tried to drive home the point that Bernie Sanders' rhetoric is, in fact, inciting violence, even though they're basically taking Bernie out of context. Because by saying uh, Donald Trump is dangerous, you have to listen to what Bernie Sanders is saying, and he also provides you with the solution to run for Congress, to protest, to call your representative. But Wolf Blitzer just had an agenda, and it was to attack Bernie Sanders. But thankfully... Jane Sanders wasn't taking it, and she decided to call him out. We have perhaps the worst and most dangerous president in the history of our country. With hindsight, did he, does he go too far in speaking like that about the president? 
I don't think so, Wolf. I think it, what's interesting is that was at the People's Summit. And uh, what I noticed on the weekend was that without any prior discussion, Roseanne DeMauro, Nina Turner, Van Jones, Bernie and I all spoke about being being careful and, and being involved with, uh, with our, our policies and with our facts, but not engaging in the politics of, of personal destruction, that we believed in civil discourse. Um, Nina was saying hard on issues, soft on people. Uh, Van Jones was saying, uh, I don't care who you voted for. What we, ca what we care about now is where do we stand? Now, dangerous, I mean, when you throw 23 million people off of health care without even a hearing, that's dangerous to those 23 million people. We have to, ha we have to be able to discuss the issues without demonizing the opponent. And honestly, Wolf, I think the media needs to look at itself as well. Uh, the media it characterizes every conversation as, uh, as a, an adversarial one. Your job, the media's job, I think, is to illuminate the facts, not fan the flames. And the media continues to cover the latest scandal, the latest um, back and forth, but not the issues so much. But, I think uh, let, me, let me interrupt, Jane. With, with, with all due respect, if a, if a president or a senator uh, or someone of authority uh, is making very, very strong statements, you want us to simply ignore those statements? If there's a social media post, a tweet, uh, and, and the president says something really, really strong, or Senator Bernie Sanders says this is the worst and most dangerous president in the history of our, our country. Do you want us to censor those words uh, no. as part of the news media? What, what are you suggesting? No. Well, I'm suggesting that just like the Democrats and the Republicans and the Independents and the Progressives are all thinking about what happened in this presidential race that the media needs to do some self-reflection as well. So I want to pause the clip right there and discuss what was talked about thus far because I think that Jane Sanders is making a really important point here that I don't want to gloss over. So she's saying that it's not dangerous to call a spade a spade. So Trump currently is trying to actively strip healthcare away from millions of Americans. That's just one of the many things he's doing that's dangerous. Uh, and yes, that is in fact dangerous. So by doing something that will lead to people dying, I think that it is not just reasonable, but we must call Donald Trump dangerous because what he's doing is dangerous to the American people. Now, Bernie Sanders isn't saying, well, the solution to this danger that Trump poses, well, you know, maybe the Second Amendment people will uh, have something to say about that and can take care of him. Although the Second Amendment people, maybe there is, I don't know. He's not saying that. I'm not saying that either. What Bernie Sanders is saying is that we have to fight back politically. We have to protest. We have to get out and vote. We have to run for Congress ourselves and challenge these Republicans that are voting to take away our health care. He's not saying that we should go and do do something violently. That's not what Bernie Sanders is saying. But Wolf Blitzer doesn't want to present what else Bernie Sanders said during this speech because that would destroy the narrative that he's trying to push. So Jane Sanders is absolutely correct here. But what I love most is how she actually called out the media's bias. So she said the media, it characterizes every conversation as an adversarial one. Your job, the media's job, I think, is to illuminate the facts, not fan the flames. And she then went on to talk about how CNN, for example, sensationalized stories. And I wanted to dig a little bit deeper into what she's saying here because it's incredibly important. So what they 
typically do is rather than just presenting the facts about climate change, for example, they'll pretend as though there's still a debate going on. When there's no debate, there's a scientific consensus that climate change is in fact occurring. And there's also a scientific consensus that the Earth is spherical. It's not flat. So they don't bring on people to debate whether or not the Earth is flat. But when it comes to climate change, even though there is a scientific consensus for that, as well as the Earth being spherical, well, they present that as something that's still debatable when it's not debatable. The overwhelming majority of the country uh, believes that climate change is occurring and that it's anthropogenic, and that's what the scientists believe. And that's why we believe that. It's because the scientists believe that. And furthermore, there's no debate. There's a fringe portion of the electorate, even within the Republican Party, that still thinks that it's a hoax, but their opinion doesn't matter because the scientists ultimately are the ones that concluded that climate change is in fact real. But See, if they just simply present the facts, then that's less entertaining and might not get them as much ratings as when you present it as, you know, this adversarial take on the issue and you bring out Bill Nye to debate Marshall Blackburn because that's what gets them the ratings. So that's what Jane Sanders is trying to say here. That's the point overall that I think she's trying to make, not to put words in her mouth, but I really think that what she's alluding to is something that's very important. They present facts in a way that is incredibly misleading. Presenting climate change as a debate with two equally opposing sides is incredibly irresponsible, but they do it anyway. But that's just one of many examples, and I want to get back to the clip here because uh, Wolf Blitzer goes on to defend the media and CNN, uh, and the points that Jane Sanders makes, it just flew right over his head. The media During is doing campaign, a lot of self... If- we're, we're doing, I can assure you, we're doing a lot of self-reflection. We're always looking back. We're look, learning lessons. We want to make sure that as the first draft of history, we get it right. When we make a mistake, we certainly always correct it as quickly as possible. Uh, this is not a perfect science by any means. Uh, but, you know, yeah. it, it, it's, it's, you hear a lot of criticism of the mainstream media Jane, from the conservative elements, from the right wing, uh, we're getting a lot of criticism from the left wing, from the progressives, people like you as well. Uh, It underscores that we're trying to do as responsible a job as we possibly can. And we certainly aren't going to try to censor very strong statements from people of responsibility. I agree. I agree, Wolf. I'm not. uh, What I'm saying is that during the during the presidential election, if I were a Republican running, I would have had a fit. I would have been so upset because every day was covered with the latest thing, terrible thing that uh, candidate Trump said. And when Marco Rubio said some silly things, he got attention for a couple of times. He backed off and he said, this is not the attention I want. I just think that we need to focus on the issues and recognize, yes, we're going to have spirited debate on issues. We just started the Sanders Institute, and we believe that an informed electorate demands uh, civil discourse and real discussion um, and bold thinking. So I, I just... I I hope that this does not make people think, well, we can't disagree on issues. We can't uh, take spirited stands. That is not healthy for our democracy. What we need to do is to focus more on the issues. And, you know, uh, I've been telling you that forever since uh, every time we talk, I'm I'm saying let's let's focus on the matter at hand rather than who said what. My hope is that. You know, we believe at the Sanders Institute that a democracy, a vital democracy, requires an informed electorate. 
Yeah, and we saw the words uh, from uh, uh, a former state senator, Nina Turner, working at your institute. Both sides need to look in the mirror. We have to decide That's what kind right. of language we are going to use in our political discourse. Uh, the only reason I point that out is because the language that Senator Bernie Sanders said about this president, the worst and most dangerous president in the history of our country, has generated some reaction. You understand that when, when a sitting senator makes that kind of accusation against the sitting president of the United States. Well, but, but uh, he went, but he didn't, it wasn't just a soundbite, Wolf. He talked I'm about I'm not saying it was just a soundbite. These were very and strong democracy. words. And what he's it saying, is strong basically, words, but back them up with the rest of the paragraph and recognize you, that you believe that this that president is worse deal with this. from your perspective, worse than Richard Nixon. I think these I think these things right now, we're at a political crossroads. I think that we are very concerned. A lot of people are very concerned about us becoming an oligarchy. I am concerned that. DAs across the country are fired. The FBI chief is fired. There are concerns about authoritarianism. There are concerns about democracy. We have veterans that have fought and died for our democracy. If we can't call attention right. to undemocratic action, that's not good. We need to have free speech. We need to have spirited discussion. We need not to make it personal demonize people. I mean, members of Congress, that's one of the concerns I have again with the media, is that members of Congress on, of all stripes are car caricatured as uh, fools or demagogues or terrible people, and they pay a price for that. I don't think you understand I don't think, I don't what think it we, takes to be I don't think we do that, Jane Sanders. Uh, a robust democracy needs a free media, needs a robust media. That's what we're doing yes. responsibly, accurately. There are elements out there that aren't doing that, but we certainly are. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so first of all, I don't know if I was the only one who noticed this, but it looked as though, even though Jane Sanders was being super polite, Wolf Blitzer looked like he wanted to cry. And you rarely see emotions from him, but I mean, this is his, his career, so he feels as though he's under attack, and he is partially responsible for the horrific media climate. So, I mean, he should feel guilty. But he goes on to talk about how, well, you know, a sitting senator called a sitting president dangerous, and that's generated a reaction. I mean, you understand that, Jane, right? That's generated a reaction. People are talking about this. Actually, not really. It's just the media, CNN, who is pushing this narrative. They're taking this one clip from Bernie Sanders saying Donald Trump is dangerous, which is a fact, and they're saying, oh, see, that that's dangerous. Obviously, he's inciting violence. I mean, you can at least understand the argument, right? No, because it's an argument that you're making. You're pushing this narrative. Who actually is saying this? Now, he then goes on to laughably claim that the mainstream media, they're doing news responsibly and accurately. And he says that democracy needs a free media, but he's fundamentally misunderstanding the point that she's trying to make. So you're trying to blame Bernie Sanders for the Virginia shooting specifically because you like covering he said, she said politics. Your actual job, however, is to just inform the public to make sure that they are armed with more information when they enter the voting booth specifically. But that's not what you're doing. You're presenting the information in a misleading way. That goes back to the climate change example I cited. So they provide you with this irrelevant information to prime you to think about the story in a certain way. It's, it's where the bias comes through. So we saw this with Mike Brown. Before he was shot, there was a video of security camera footage about him basically strong arming and robbing a clerk 
at a 7-Eleven or some, you know, uh, store, uh, when that's completely irrelevant. The, the fact is that his hands were up in the air and he was shot and killed. But they're releasing that because they want you to think about the story in a certain way. They're bringing up these irrelevant facts because they want to demonize someone. They have an agenda. And it's not just that they have an agenda, but they're actually trying to hide the stories to serve the agenda of their corporate overlords. And I'm glad that Wolf brought up the point about democracy needing a free and independent media because currently that's not really the case. So large multinational corporations and government, they're currently inextricably linked. You can't separate them. So the politicians do what the corporations want because the corporations buy off politicians. And also the problem with that is that, you know, CNN, their their parent company, Time Warner, uh, they also buy off politicians. So what we're seeing is news filtered through large multinational corporations that have an agenda. Let me ask CNN this. Why won't they discuss net neutrality when the overwhelming majority of the public supports it? Well, it's because CNN doesn't want to inform people. They serve to benefit the corporate status quo and bolster the profit margins for their parent companies. I mean, it's not even about reporting the news to them. It's about driving profits and making money, which is why sensationalism and blaming Bernie Sanders, for example, for the Virginia shooting is one of the many things they do to try to increase revenue. So in the end, Jane Sanders is calling you out, Wolf, because you're part of the problem. You and your company pushed Donald Trump relentlessly. You gave him $2 billion in free media coverage. It's not just CNN, but I mean, collectively, media gave Donald Trump $2 billion in free press coverage during the primaries. Um, and they are in part to blame for the horrific political environment that we're in. So what Jane Sanders is telling you is to look in the mirror before you start demonizing other people. Do better. We've previously talked about how states are leading the way when it comes to progressive policies like marijuana legalization and now potentially single-payer if you look to states like New York and California. However, Hawaii is now emerging as a leader in their own right because they passed a bill supporting universal basic income. And that's not even the best part. They passed the bill in both houses unanimously. So, first of all, they give us Tulsi Gabbard, and now they're leading the way when it comes to universal basic income. Okay, if you live in Hawaii, virtual high five because you are electing people uh, to your state legislature that actually give a damn about you. So this is a huge, huge win for progressives like myself who actually advocate for universal basic income and see it as something that's inevitable to uh, fight off automation and job loss in the future. So Business Insider explains, on June 15th, Hawaii State Representative Chris Lee wrote a Reddit post about House Concurrent Resolution 89, a bill he says he introduced in order to start a conversation about our future. According to Lee, after much work and with the help of a few key colleagues, it passed both houses of the state legislature unanimously. Lee also mentioned the development via Twitter. Hawaii, first state to declare everyone deserves basic financial security, begins eval of universal basic income. Hashtag UBI. The bill has two major provisions. First, it declares that all families in Hawaii are entitled to basic financial security. As far as I'm told, it's the first time any state has made such a pronouncement, wrote Lee. The second provision establishes a number of government offices to analyze our state's economy and find ways to ensure all families have basic financial security, including an evaluation of different forms of full or partial universal basic income. The congressman thanked Redditors in his post 
closed, and he said the site became the first resource in considering universal basic income and added a Reddit standard too long didn't read at the end. The state of Hawaii is going to begin evaluating universal basic income. Under a universal basic income program, every citizen is granted a fixed income that's not dependent on their status in life. Despite the current focus on the concept, it actually isn't particularly new. In fact, former U.S. President Richard Nixon actually floated the idea back in 1969. However, the benefits of such a program have become more appealing in light of recent technological advances, specifically the adoption of automated systems that could result in widespread unemployment. Proponents of UBI have highlighted how it would be an improvement on existing social welfare programs while mitigating the effects of the joblessness expected to follow automation. Critics think that UBI would encourage a more lax attitude about work and argue that funding such a system would be difficult, if not impossible. Hawaii may be the first U.S. state to pass any sort of UBI-positive legislation, but several countries around the globe are already testing the system. Finland began its two-year UBI pilot in 2016, and Germany has one as well. Canada plans to start trials in Prince Edward Island and Ontario, while India is currently debating the merits of UBI. Several private UBI UBI endeavors are also in the works, including one that uses blockchain and cryptocurrency. So again, let me just say how excited I am that this bill not just passed, but passed unanimously. That's huge. Now, understand that they're not actually codifying universal basic income into law, but it's certainly a step forward in the right direction. So that's great. Now, whenever I talk about states implementing these progressive policies, I always have to mention the importance of the domino effect. So it always takes one state to get the ball rolling, and then years later, you see more and more states start to follow suit. So again, uh, I sound like a broken record, but it's true, and it's really important. So uh, Colorado and Washington State voted by referendum to legalize marijuana two years later. Alaska, uh, the District of Columbia, Oregon legalized marijuana in 2014. And then a couple of years later, we saw Maine and California legalized marijuana. So it just takes a couple of states to get the ball rolling. Uh, we saw California and then uh, New York basically advance single-payer healthcare. So if Hawaii does this, then if they at least experiment with universal basic income and it works and it's a success, this is a really great way to fight off poverty in the future. I don't think that this is the end-all be-all, and I don't necessarily know what the correct amount of income should be. So I think a starting point should be $12,000 a year. Each person gets $1,000 each month. In terms of funding, I personally don't actually know how this would be funded because you know, a lot of people talk about taxing the rich when it comes to uh, single-payer healthcare, and I certainly uh, have this position. Um, so I don't know if after taxing them and paying for healthcare, there would be money left over to uh, pay for universal basic income. But certainly if we find money to pay for wars, we can find a way to fund this. And it's something that's important if you don't want there to be mass poverty in the future when automation takes over because it's something that's just inevitable. Technology is inevitable. So we've got to make sure that we're proactive in fighting off poverty in the future. But again, it's difficult to think about the future because if you're an elected official, your term is what, two years, six years? Uh, so that's something that it has a high cost and a diffused benefit because we won't really see the payoff of universal basic income until the future. But it's something that is smart to do. It's something that we need to be doing, and the fact that countries around the globe are experimenting with it is a good sign. Now, one thing that's important is that um, I've heard some pushback 
uh, from people on the left who are progressive that state, you know, it shouldn't be universal basic income. I think we should cap it. If you make more than, let's say, $500,000 a year, you don't need universal basic income. You don't need a $1,000 payment every single month. But that's not really the point. The reason why it's universal basic income is so that way public opinion uh, remains favorable to it. It's not viewed as an entitlement program because if everyone gets it, then everyone's entitled to it. So they can't view it in that negative light. And that's why social security is so important uh, and so popular. It's because it applies to everyone. So if we do the same thing, then we can make sure that public support for universal basic income remains strong for it. So look, I just view this as something that's great. It's universal basic income for a reason, although I completely can empathize with the argument of people who are saying we need to cut off the rich from it. But if you cut off the rich from it, then there probably going to be against it, although it could be a way to fund it. So look, there's a lot of confusion about this topic um, and this issue, and we don't have all the details, but I think this experimentation is absolutely needed. So I'm excited to see how it turns out when it comes to uh, Scandinavia and Canada. And from preliminary results, we already see that it's reducing stress with people who uh, live in areas that offer uh, universal basic income. And I think that that alone is a great reason to support this. Um, so look, we'll see. But this is a phenomenal step in the right direction. Kudos to Hawaii. Uh, you guys are electing people that actually give a damn about you. Congratulations. So it's now been about a year since the Democratic Party primaries and about seven months since the general election. And here we are still trying to relitigate the situation and retrace our steps and figure out how it was the case that Donald Trump uh, was electorally successful over everyone else. Now, if you're an establishment hack like Neera Tanden, then you are going to place blame on Jill Stein. And to be fair to Neera, she's not the only one that's doing this because Politico actually released a long hit piece on Jill Stein titled, Jill Stein Isn't Sorry. And I've even seen progressives jump on the bash Jill bandwagon. And as a result, I feel as though I'm still having to defend why I decided to vote for Jill Stein in my deep blue state. Um, so I went back and I watched the video, uh, or the, basically where I made the case for why, as a, as a progressive, I'm voting for Jill Stein, and I think that my rationale was perfectly reasonable, it was strategically sound, uh, and furthermore, I think that I was extra kind to Hillary Clinton supporters, and I said, look, if you don't want to vote for Jill Stein and you want to vote for Hillary Clinton, I can completely understand that. Um, and basically everything I said still stands, but yet here I am finding myself a year later making the same argument all the time. So what I decided to do was just play the clip where I uploaded a video explaining the reasons why I voted for Jill Stein instead of Hillary Clinton in my blue state and why I thought that was important. So feel free to take a look and uh, share it if you agree and you're having to defend yourself like I am. I don't speak for everyone, but this is just me and I think that the points that I'll make will resonate with a lot of people. So with that being said, uh, I will talk about why I support Jill Stein in light of three common criticisms that I see. So one is that they contend Jill Stein will never win, so why vote for her? Uh, second of all, uh, many argue that a vote for Jill Stein equals a vote for Trump. And finally, they say that third parties lead to Republican presidencies. That's kind of related to that last point, but I'll address that separately as well. Now, as for the first criticism, they contend that Jill Stein will never win. She has a 0% chance of winning, uh, and they think that we're naive enough to not actually see the writing on the wall. Look, as someone who's actually studied electoral engineering, I'm the first one to admit that our majoritarian electoral system is completely unfair. It makes it very, very difficult for third-party candidates to ever win. So, 
I get that. It's called Duverger's Law. When you live in a majoritarian, winner-take-all, first-past-the-post system, whatever you want to call it, when you live in a system where the winner will win it all and the loser gets nothing, no representation, well, then you most likely will have two parties. If you live in a proportional representation system, then you're probably going to have more than two parties. But there are other variables, such as the electoral formula, that is, how you determine, you know, the seats that will be attributed to people based on their percentage. There's also the electoral threshold, which is the percentage that you need to win to secure any seats in the legislature. There is, you know, social cleavages that also determine the number of political parties in a country. So there's a lot that goes into it. So by voting for Jill Stein or Gary Johnson, many of us don't actually expect a political upset by a third party candidate. It's not impossible, but it's highly improbable. But in spite of that fact, here's why I'm still going to vote for Jill Stein. One is that I just legitimately agree with her more than any other candidate in the race. And second of all, I'm hoping that my vote for the Green Party uh, will help them obtain a high enough percentage so that way they can actually secure federal funding and build a real national party. I want the Green Party to make a real commitment to electoral reform, but with that being said, you know, they've got to put in the work. They've got to run uh, candidates at the local level, at the state level. They've really got to make an effort to convince us that they will fight for electoral reform because that would make them a lot more appealing. Now, finally, the reason why I'm voting for Jill Stein is because my vote for her counts as a protest vote. My vote communicates to the Democratic Party that I do not give them permission to use and abuse me. They don't get to put forth a conservative candidate in what's supposed to be a liberal party and then try to rig it in her favor and then still expect me to vote for her. So I'm telling the party that they don't get my vote every election no matter what. I don't care how scary the Republican candidate is. Yes, you can even put forth a maniac like Donald Trump and you still have to earn my vote. It's not just a given every election cycle. Now also, the more votes that the Green Party gets, the more that the Democratic Party will have to wake up and realize that this party, who is a third party, even if they can't win, they're still taking votes from you and they're going to force the Democratic Party to move back to the left because right now, as the Republican Party moves further to the right, the Democratic Party is now moving further to the right to make up ground. But the more votes that the Green Party receives, well, that's going to actually pull them back. The higher the vote count, the larger the vote percentage that Jill Stein receives, that's going to act like a force of gravity and pull them back to the left where they actually should be. Now, when it comes to the second argument that a vote for Jill Stein is akin to voting for Donald Trump, uh, that's patently false. In fact, a vote for Jill Stein is quite literally a vote for Jill Stein. <laughs> and uh, furthermore, here's what I dislike about this argument. This is the argument that we were making, so you don't get to make this. We were telling you during the primaries a vote for Hillary Clinton is a vote for Donald Trump because we're not going to vote for Hillary Clinton if she's the nominee. So this is your doing right here. So you don't get to tell us that a vote for Jill Stein is a vote for Donald Trump. That's bullshit. See, for me, I live in a deep blue state. So a vote for Donald Trump effectively isn't even a vote for Donald Trump because Hillary Clinton will get 100% of the electoral votes in my state of Oregon. So even if I did vote for Donald Trump, it really wouldn't make a difference in the grand scheme of things. So my strategy is to vote for Jill Stein in hopes that this will help the Green Party secure enough to get 
federal funding. Now, of course, there's nuance to it. In a swing state, if you really do hate Donald Trump and want to prevent him, him from winning, or if you hate Hillary Clinton and you want to prevent her from winning, then you may actually see it in your best interest to not vote third party and to vote for the person who you may not like the most, but who you think has the best chance at beating the person who you dislike the most. So it's just strategic here. I would probably reconsider my vote for a third party candidate if I did live in a swing state. I may actually vote for Hillary Clinton, even though the thought of that literally makes me nauseous. Uh, I would vote for her just to prevent Donald Trump from winning, because even though they're both very dangerous candidates, I think that she's maybe a little bit less dangerous. But at the same time, I don't know what I would do. And that's not a decision that I have to make. See, my job is not to guilt you into voting for the lesser of two evils if you live in a swing state. My job is to present the facts to you and be objective and allow you to make your own decision because you're an adult, you're smart. If you're watching this podcast, you probably are subscribed to the Young Turks, Secular Talk, David Pakman, Benjamin Dixon, Tim Black, Debbie Lasignan. So you probably are pretty politically savvy anyway. So why should I come out here and berate you about who you should vote for. Vote for Jill Stein, vote for Hillary Clinton, vote for Donald Trump. I don't give a shit, okay? <laughs> the thing that I'm doing is I'm telling you who I'm voting for. I'm being honest and upfront with you. And then I'm saying, you know, here are the facts about all of that. Make your own decision. Now, the final argument related to that last argument is that if you vote for a third party candidate, you're helping Republicans win the White House. Many people are afraid to vote third party because of this reason, but this year you actually have a spoiler on both sides. So if votes are split equally, that possibility is less likely. And also you can't blame anybody for not supporting the Democratic Party. You have to blame the Democratic Party themselves. Everyone points to the 2000 election as the go-to example since people voted for Nader and then we got a President Bush. People like to conveniently ignore the fact that thousands and thousands of Democrats actually flipped and voted for George Bush. And second, you have to blame Al Gore for running a shitty campaign and picking a horrible VP. He chose Joe Lieberman as his running mate. You can't blame voters for that. And finally, the Supreme Court is the one that decided that election. Al Gore won. When they did the recount in Florida, Al Gore won. So you could blame the Supreme Court. You can't blame third-party candidates. You have to blame the Democratic Party for not inspiring enough people. Al Gore was not a great candidate. Let's be honest. Bill Clinton was not a good president. And his VP certainly didn't make a good candidate. So I'm sorry, but you have to blame the Democrats. If you blame voters for going to a third party candidate, it's like you're blaming the victim. I'm sorry, but they're anti-establishment because the establishment wasn't working out for them. That's not their fault. But still, that doesn't mean that many Bernie Sanders supporters won't actually support Hillary Clinton. And I don't judge them. I don't criticize them because if you do live in a swing state, then yeah, you may actually be afraid of Donald Trump and want to put your eggs in the basket that you think has the best chance of winning. And unfortunately, that's Hillary Clinton. I'm not going to judge you for that at all. I'm not going to judge anyone for making the decision that, you know, they're making. Although I will say, you know, there's a caveat to that. I don't support anyone voting for Donald Trump. I disagree with that 100%. I think there's no strategy to it. And I think that Donald Trump is the antithesis of what Bernie Sanders represented. So if you are a Bernie Sanders supporter, then I, I don't understand that. Now, here's the most important reason why we're supporting Jill Stein and not Hillary Clinton. We feel as though we're giving the Democratic Party a mandate to put forward, no matter what conservative candidate they want to offer, someone who is just going to fall in line and support their donors. Uh, and we're giving them a mandate to do this. And we don't want to do this. We don't want to give the Democratic Party permission to put forth anyone. We want to actually tell them that we have control. We want to maintain leverage against the Democratic Party and say, if you run any further to the right, you lose us. So by voting for Jill Stein, we're drawing a line. That's that. 
and we're going to prove it to them that this is the case by voting for Jill Stein. So a vote for Jill Stein is a vote for her because we legitimately side with her on a majority of the issues, and it's also a strategic protest vote. We want to bring the Democratic Party back. Will they listen to us? I don't know, but I'm still going to vote for Jill Stein. Now, again, I don't speak for everyone, but this is my reasoning, and I think that many people can probably agree with it. Now, with that being said, is Donald Trump a scary candidate? Absolutely. I'm not trying to downplay uh, how scary Donald Trump is, but the fact that Donald Trump is a maniac doesn't make Hillary Clinton any more appealing, and it doesn't negate from the fact that Hillary Clinton is also a dangerous candidate. I mean, her Syrian no-fly zone is an example. When asked about her Syrian no-fly zone during a debate and what she would do if Vladimir Putin violated that, she said, well, you know, I don't think it would come to that. Okay, so we have a candidate that could potentially spark World War III in Hillary Clinton. We have a candidate in Donald Trump that potentially wants to use nuclear weapons against ISIS and bring back torture. I mean, both are dangerous. So the fact that Donald Trump is probably a little bit more dangerous than Hillary Clinton, it doesn't make her any more appealing. It doesn't make me want to support her. So you're more than welcome to disagree with my reasoning, uh, and I encourage dialogue on this issue. But that's why I'm voting for Jill Stein. I'm not going to judge anyone if you choose not to vote for Jill Stein. If you choose to fall in line, I'm not going to judge anyone. Okay, that's my decision. If you choose to vote for Gary uh, Gary Johnson, cool. We all have to come to our own decision, but what I'm going to do as a YouTube host is just continue to share the facts in a, in a manner that I think is objective and let you know and be upfront about the fact that I am supporting Jill Stein. That's all I got for you guys. I want to thank you all so much for tuning in, and I want to send a special thank you, as usual, to the Patreon patrons and the PayPal contributors, because you guys help us to not just survive, but also to thrive, and your support is crucial. So thank you all so much. Uh, again, 100 episodes, that is huge. Um, so... You know, we've been doing this for a long time, and I'd like to think that I've been a consistent host throughout the course of, you know, these 100 episodes. So, you know, hey, here's to another 100. Hopefully we grow even bigger. Uh, but I, you know, after 100 episodes, I can look back and say that starting this podcast was one of the best ideas I've ever had because this is... This is weekly therapy for me, and if I don't do it, then I just feel as though I'm going to burst with anger and emotions. So I, I truly, truly love this podcast, and I really, you know, after 100 episodes, I'm thankful that other people can see the value in it as well. So thank you all again so much. We've got big things to come on the show. Uh, next week, I'll be interviewing David Dole from The Rational National. He's an upcoming big uh, progressive YouTuber, and I'll also be interviewing Tim Canova in the coming weeks to talk about his rematch with Debbie Wasserman Schultz, so stay tuned for that. Uh, anyways, I will see you all next week. Have a great day.